The church historian Carl Truman has written a book that's been very popular in the last couple of years called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We live in the age of the, the triumph of the self. Our conceptions of self seem to be more important than any other reality. One of the, the data points that Professor Truman uses to say why this is the case is by talking about what would have happened maybe a hundred years ago if a, a person were to walk into their doctor's office and say, I feel like I conceive of myself as a woman trapped in a man's body. He said a hundred years ago the doctor would have heard of that and if, if he could have processed it would have said, well this is a, a problem with your mind, with your understanding of yourself and and our goal in treating you is to bring what you see in your mind, what you understand in your mind about yourself into conformity with your body, with what reality is, with who God made you to be, perhaps. But today, if, if a person were to walk into their physician's office and say that, they very well might be told, well, of course you're right. That's true. And we need to, to alter your body and give you some hormones, maybe do surgery to bring your, your body to conform with your mind, to bring your body into conformity with your conception of yourself, because what you conceive about yourself is what's really true. This is what we mean by the triumph of the self. What, what we conceive about ourselves we believe to be most true, most real, and everything else needs to kind of fall in line with that. And yet, at the same time, even as we have this great confidence about the self and what the, the self believes, I think we all sense how empty the self's leadership is. And this isn't just an internal sense. You can look at data about how, how young people feel depressed and anxious at rates far beyond what any previous generations have felt. Just at the same time that we're confident about we should follow our hearts, we realize that our hearts don't really lead us into places that satisfy. The meaning we're looking for is elusive. The self is not trustworthy. Well, this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 8 and the, the most clear proclamation of the new covenant in the New Testament, I think we see the author of Hebrews proclaiming something to us that deals with this very issue that we face. Our confidence in ourselves is misplaced, and it will not save us. This is the message that the whole Bible has been oriented towards proclaiming. That man cannot save himself. That no mere sinful human being can save another. That no system of religion that's based on external things can save. This morning, as the Lord proclaims a, a new covenant... He's proclaiming something that the whole Bible has been oriented towards. And even the Old Covenant, which we'll learn some about today, was, been, was leading up to the New Covenant. It was, a, it was implemented by God to teach God's people to prepare for the coming of this New Covenant that, the, that God would bring. This, this salvation that God would bring that was unlike anything they had seen before. So in that sense, the new covenant is, is not like a, a new car that's new for a little bit and then, you know, it starts to lose its value. The new covenant is like resurrection life. It's, it's new in that way. It's new in a way that brings 
eternal life to those who are part of it. So it's important to understand as we talk about these big terms, Old Covenant and New Covenant, we're, we're not talking about Bible trivia. We're talking, to, we're talking about God's message to us as sinners that what we need is not external religious rituals or laws. The things that we need as fallen people are not anything that can come from within the fallen world. No, our problem is profound. We are dead in sin. And the only way for us to be saved is for God to intervene. We need a savior and we need a sacrifice for sin that comes from God himself. We need an inward renewal of the heart that only God can bring. And that's what the new covenant is all about. The new covenant is this resurrection life. It is the true life that God gives. So as we look at the new covenant this morning here in Hebrews 8, we're going to do it under three big points. First, why Christ can save. Why Christ can save. That's verses 1 through 5 or 6. Second, why we need saving. You'll see that in verses 7 through 9 or 10, 7 through 10. And then finally, what Christ promises. So why Christ can save, why we need saving, and what Christ promises. Those are the three headings we'll use to guide our time this morning. The first six verses of Hebrews chapter 8 are a very condensed summary of Hebrews' argument. Let me just read the first couple of verses. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In those two verses, we get allusions back to all the teaching about the high priest that the Lord has given us in chapter 4 through 7. We even get an allusion back to the very opening chapter of the book in the first few verses where the Lord tells us that Jesus sat down at the majesty of the right hand of the majesty on high after making purification for sins. So the author is just giving us a very compact, dense reminder of some of the territory that we've covered in our study through the book of Hebrews. He's proclaiming to us Jesus, the high priest, who's paid for his death, paid for our sin through his death, and is now, because of his perfect suffering, given, been given the right to sit on the throne of God in heaven. He's ascended through the heavens and is seated at God's right hand. All of this is, is kind of loaded into the author saying, we have such a high priest, which is a phrase that he's repeating from chapter 7. But even if you've been following along with all of our, our sermons through Hebrews, if you can maybe have perfect memories of all the sermons, I think this could still sound a bit like bible jargon, right? There are lots of details here. It's hard to see the significance of them. But I just want to hammer again, this is an extraordinarily, imperfect, uh, extraordinarily important point that the author is making about Jesus. He's proclaiming to us one of the most profound and essential truths of the Christian message. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can save because who he is and because of what he accomplished. The way the author shows us why Jesus can save is by comparing Jesus, the high priest, 
to the high priests of the Old Testament. So let's read verses 3 through 5 now. God's word says, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So that last bit is referring to how Moses went up to Mount Sinai and was given visions, apparently, of the the heavenly throne room. And the instructions that he was subsequently given about building the tabernacle were were based on that thing that he saw. He was to build a, a copy or after that pattern. But this argument here takes a strange first step. The author begins proclaiming Jesus' greatness by pointing out again that according to the Old Testament law, he would not have been able to serve as a Levitical priest. He was not a member of the tribe of Levi. But this is a way for him to remind us that he has this greater priesthood that Pastor Tim has already talked about. He is of the Melchizedekian order of priests. This eternal priesthood he has is greater than the Levitical priest. This is kind of a way of sneaking in the fact that these Levitical priests were sinful men. They ministered in their weakness, and their ministry could make no one perfect. And the author hints then again something he's going to mention more in chapter 9. The, the sacrifices that the law stipulated that these Levitical priests to make were, were animal sacrifices. Right? They, were, they were blameless animal sacrifices, but they were still just sheeps and goats. But these sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, could not actually accomplish forgiveness of sin for anyone. So the the priests that the law ordained, the sacrifices that the law ordained, these things are, are useless in actually saving or perfecting anyone. And then finally, he, he makes kind of a new point. He emphasizes here that these old covenant priests ministered in this copy, this shadowy thing that the Lord instructed Moses to build, a copy of the heavenly reality. You know, it, it was God-ordained, and God condescended to be there, but it wasn't God's throne room. It wasn't heaven itself where God dwells. By comparison, he says, Jesus' ministry is much more excellent than theirs. That's what he says in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Christ's ministry is much more excellent. We've also heard that much more excellent in chapter 1. Jesus has been given a name that is much more excellent than the angels. Jesus is greater. First, Jesus is the eternal, sinless priest. He's not of the Levitical order, an order that was composed only of sinners who needed saving themselves. He's of this Melchizedekian order, this eternal order. And Jesus didn't offer the ineffectual blood of bulls and goats. He offered his own sinless life. And his death saves to the uttermost. And finally... Jesus did not make his offering in a man-made copy of the real thing. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, has passed through the heavens to God's own true holy place. 
And there Jesus presented his offering to God and it was received. He made purification for sinners and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of this is meant to show us, friends, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is the only way we can be saved. He is the only Savior. He can save because he is the Son of God who took on flesh in order to suffer for sinners. He can save because he suffered in perfect obedience to God, unstained by sin. He can save because he rose from the dead and was exalted to God's right hand. He can save because he doesn't serve in any man-made temple. He is a minister in heaven, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. Only Jesus is qualified to save human sinf- uh, sinful human beings from the power and penalty of our sin. Only Jesus can do that. Now to the Jewish audience that first read this letter, the author is making an emphatic point that the system that Moses set up, the law that was set up under Moses' uh, leadership, could not save. Again, it was at best a pointer to the Christ who could save. And those who were saved through that system are really saved by Christ. We know from other places in the New Testament. But that old covenant system, its priests were weak and sinful. Its sanctuary is only a copy. Its animal sacrifices couldn't pay the price of humanity's sin. All these are arguments the author is mustering to say to his readers, don't go back to the system of Moses. He's calling them to draw near to God through Jesus Christ, the great high priest. He's saying that's the only way to be saved to the uttermost, is by drawing near to God through Christ. Of course, as we've often noted, as we read this letter in the 21st century, we don't need a lot of encouragement not to go back to the Mosaic Covenant, do we? That's not something that any of us are tempted really to do, I don't think. But consider this. Despite its weakness, the Old Covenant was designed by God. In that respect, it is good and gracious. These priests, they were called and set apart by God. They were given the law. If God says these things about the weakness of the Old Covenant, about its uselessness to save us, what must God's assessment be of other world religions? If the priests of God ministering in the tabernacle that God designed could not perfect anyone, what can a Buddhist monk do for you? What can a Muslim imam do for you? Can they lead anyone to salvation? Can they make anyone perfect? Can the pantheon of Hindu gods do any spiritual good for you? They are no gods at all, and they cannot save. Those religions may not be tempting to you either, but what about the the less overtly religious spirituality that is so common among our neighbors? Perhaps you think you can achieve some kind of wholeness through practicing mindfulness. Maybe you think that you can sort of rid yourself of distraction and unhealthy desires by a practice of meditation, and in that way you can kind of cleanse yourself, become a, a whole person. A kind of self-salvation is on offer through those things. Or maybe you think just you can do it through discipline and hard work. That's how you will save yourself. All these have the, have the air of having this modern sense of the self, this rise of the self. We can do it. I want you to hear this, though. 
no matter what precise form it takes, any religion that depends on us cannot save. This passage shows us the weakness of the Old Covenant. But these weaknesses of the Old Covenant apply to all of these man-made religions, all of these efforts at self-salvation. Right? We are no better than Israel's priests. We're no more holy than they. They're more holy than us by being set apart by God himself. No merely human priests can save you. We are just disdained by sin, so we can't save ourselves. And think about the sacrifices that those old priests offered to God. Again, they were ordained by God. They were regulated by God. What do you have to offer God? What do you have that can erase your debt of sin before the holy God? We can't punish ourselves enough to erase our past sins. There's not enough good works or acts of penance that we can do to erase those sins. There's no amount of meditation that we can do now to rid ourselves of sinful desires. If the Old Testament blood of bulls and goats couldn't atone for sin, then the sacrifices that we offer are even more worthless. And consider what kind of access you have to God. Do you have a a portal to heaven that you can get in and be transported there? If the Levites ministered in a shadow or copy of the heavenly reality, how would the author describe our situation? We have no way of gaining entry into God's presence on our own. There's no portal we can enter. There's no earthly temple we can go to. At our very best, at humanity's very best, we were dealing with copies and shadows that God revealed. At our worst, we poison ourselves with delusions. Delusions about ourselves, delusions about God. Do you see how worthless our efforts at self-salvation are? Our man-made religions are. They cannot save. But Jesus can save. He paid for our sin through his sinless death. He conquered death by rising from the grave. He's gone where none of us can go on our own. Into heaven itself. Into the very presence of God. And there Jesus has been received with all honor. The book of Hebrews gives us this glimpse into heaven about the the honor with which Jesus was received. He's crowned with glory. He sits down at God's throne. His offering is received And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus' sacrifice was found to be sufficient to cleanse us from our sin. He is our enthroned king and high priest. Christ can save because of these things, because of his all-sufficient sacrifice, because of his sinlessness, because of his exaltation. Again, the author wraps all this up by saying he has this more excellent ministry enacted on better promises. He is the only one who can save those who draw near to him. And so the question is, have I drawn near to God through Jesus Christ? Am I resting in him? Am I trusting in him? Only Jesus can save. Are you trusting in Christ for salvation? 
In starting with this why Jesus can save, we may have gotten the cart before the horse. We've explained that Christ can save, but we haven't established why we need saving. And that comes next in our text. The author continues his comparison between Jesus and the new covenant Jesus is bringing and the old covenant. But now he moves away from just a narrow focus on the priesthood to a broader focus on the covenants in general. That's what verse 6 begins to do. He calls it, he calls the the old covenant, the first covenant. And then he uses a passage from Jeremiah 31 that we've already had read for us in our uh, worship service today to continue this comparison. The author introduces this quote from Jeremiah by saying that the Lord has established a new covenant because he found fault with the old. It's a very provocative thing to say. And then he offers evidence in this quote for the fault that he's found. Let's read the first two verses of this quote from Jeremiah in Hebrews 8, 8, and 9. These are quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31, and 32. We read, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now in this first part, the author does not explicitly name the faults of the old covenant. But he says that the new covenant will be different than the one he made with his people when Moses was their mediator. And in actuality, the fault that he points out here is the fault with the people, with Israel. He says in verse 9, in the second half, they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. We see in the old covenant and the, the salvation from Egypt that the Lord graciously saved his people. It was out of his love for Israel, his firstborn son, that he delivered them. He, he took them by the hand. What an amazing image of God's compassion. He took them by the hand like you would a small child leading them away from danger. He led them out of slavery in Egypt. And he took him into the wilderness and made a covenant with them so that instead of serving Pharaoh, they might serve him and find life. So he made this covenant with them in the wilderness. And we looked at that elements of that covenant in our study of Leviticus. We, we can see lots of details about that covenant. But the point that he's drawing our attention to here is that the children of Israel did not continue in the covenant. If we were to turn back to Jeremiah again in the passage that Pastor Gio read for us, we'd see the Hebrew text is even more direct. They broke the covenant God made with them. So Israel needed saving because they rebelled against God's gracious covenant. I want to just read you a, few, or a couple of verses from first Jeremiah and then Hosea that describe this covenant breaking. First, listen to what Jeremiah says about Israel in his prophecy, prophecy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Jeremiah 2, 11. He asked, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This perfectly encapsulates the insanity of sin 
but also the, the thing that we've all done. We've all forsaken our good God for things that cannot satisfy and that ultimately lead to our death. This perfectly encapsulates the rise and triumph of the modern self. We follow our hearts and our hearts lead us to destruction. So Israel forsook their God, the source of life, for worthless things that destroy. Now listen to a couple of verses from Hosea chapter 4. I go to Hosea because Hosea is all about how Israel and God are in a, a marriage covenant. God is the faithful, loving husband, and Israel forsakes him. In the, in the Jeremiah passage, we see a more clear ref, explicit reference to God as husband. So that's why I chose this. So listen to first Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, and then verse 12. The Lord says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And so you have forgotten the law of your Lord, I will also forget your children. And a few verses later in 4.12, he says, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. As one author put it, the scriptures of the Old Testament present the Lord as Israel's husband and Israel as God's unfaithful wife. Notice here that Israel rejected the knowledge of God. I just want you to file that away because of how Christ will offer these new covenant promises that we will know the Lord. But what Israel rejects is knowing God. You can even tell from that little phrase, rejects the knowledge of God. That's not mainly a knowledge problem. They weren't stupid or lacking intellect. They rejected knowing their Lord. They turned away from the gracious knowledge of God and being known by God. They turned away from God as the only true source of salvation. So they pursued a path of rebellious, willful ignorance, which is the same path that the nations around them were on. They worshiped dead idols. They knew better. They'd been given the blessings of the law and the tabernacle, but they rejected that knowledge. So we see here not only that Israel broke the covenant, but that they also faced the consequences of breaking the covenant. Christ, uh, God, God had called them his royal priesthood, and now he says he's revoking that status from them. They're judged by God. These consequences of, of judgment, of exile, of removal from their pride of place, these were baked into the covenant. So if you, if you read through the first five books of the, New, of the Old Testament, you find repeated references to the blessings and curses of the covenant. At the outset, when God made the covenant with Israel, he, he threatened them. If you do not walk in my ways, you will, you will be judged. You will face punishment and exile. And that's exactly what happened. This wasn't just a hypothetical. They did break the covenant, and they did face judgment. It's remarkable that as the, the Lord is characterizing Israel, the characteristic he gives them is they are covenant breakers. That's his judgment on his people. Israel, though, here is not meant to be an example of someone we throw stones at and say we're better than them. Israel is a microcosm of all of us. Their rejection of God is what all of us have done. The scriptures are clear about this. We're all sinners. We're all covenant breakers, whether we're Jews or Gentiles. 
If you, if you know the New Testament letter of the Romans, it's kind of a, a high point of Christian theology. The first few chapters of that book are all about establishing Jew and Gentile, all of us were sinners, we're covenant breakers. We've all suppressed the truth about God and unrighteousness. So instead of pursuing knowledge of God and, and leaning into his grace and forgiveness, instead of walking in his ways, we've trusted ourselves. We've done our own thing. We've followed our hearts. We've let the self be dominant. We followed our own gods. Now, in our day, of course, those gods are not typically carved idols, but they are still gods. We turn money and relationships and pleasure and even hard work into gods that we follow and are enslaved to. We have the ability to turn anything good into an idol by making it into an ultimate thing. But these gods cannot save us. They only enslave us. Like Israel, we also have forsaken the fountain of living water and hewed out cisterns that can hold no water. This leads Paul to conclude in Romans chapter 2, 9 through 12, that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under sin. Use this, this string of Old Testament quotations to say, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's a stark judgment of all humanity. We've turned aside from the one who is our creator and our savior, and we've become worthless, he says. I want to just key in on that term worthless, because we could misunderstand that to say that Paul's saying our lives have no value. Or that maybe we should just end it all, right? We're worthless. But that's not at all what the scriptures teach about human life. That's not what it means to be worthless here. I think we should understand worthless here in the same way we've understood God to say that the old covenant is useless. It means that because of our sin and our false worship, we cannot save ourselves. We're worthless insofar as it comes to saving ourselves. We've rejected the saving knowledge of God. We've turned away from the compassionate saving grace of God to, to other things that are worthless. That is why we need saving. That's why God provided salvation. Do you know that you need to be saved? Do you understand the depth of your spiritual problem? Calling it a problem makes it sound too small. It's, it's a crisis. And the answer to the crisis cannot be any man-made religion. Again, not even in the Old Testament that God ordained can we find ultimate salvation. The only solution is Christ. Those who, are, who have wrecked our lives by sin can be saved by trusting in Jesus and what he's accomplished. So as harshly as we name the sin, as, as great as we say the problem is, there is a greater salvation in our great high priest. His blood really does purify sinners who defiled themselves. So no matter how dirty and guilty you feel, Christ can make you clean. There is hope for you in Christ. If right now you are a thousand miles away from God, you can feel the separation. You know you're an enemy of God. 
God promises that those who come to him in Christ become his friends and his children. The gospel turns enemies into children of God. It, it brings those who are far off near. That is what the gospel does. If you trust in Jesus, God will bring you near. We need saving. And only Christ can save. Are you trusting in Christ? The last part of the Jeremiah quotation unfolds the promises of the new covenant. As verse 6 says, the, the blessings, the, the greater promises that Christ's covenant is enacted upon. So here are those better promises in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. These promises key in on an internal knowledge of God and a universal knowledge of God. The Lord promises to write his law in the minds and on the hearts of his people. And he promises a day when every member of God's covenant people, from the least to the greatest, will know him. And these promises directly answer some of the, the faults or problems with the old covenant. The old covenant did not change the hearts of the Israelites. I'll be sure it aimed at the heart, but it didn't change it. So God was clear with the old covenant people, your hearts need to be circumcised. And he often called them to account for, for being circumcised externally while their hearts ran after idols. Their, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And so we can say there are some in the Old Covenant that are genuinely converted, right? We can look at the, the uh, King, King David. We can look at Hannah, the mother of Samuel. We can see true faith in the Old Covenant by God's grace. But there were many people, perhaps even most, we can, who, who, who we can say were not truly converted, who did not truly believe. And so in the words of verse 11, the old, in the Old Covenant, it was always necessary for a man to say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, because even among the Israelites, saving knowledge of God was not universal. That's what that know the Lord is getting at. Those are the kind of the, the ABCs of the faith. But the new covenant of Christ, that Christ mediates, promises a change of heart. The promise, the better promises of the new covenant is that God changes people's hearts. That's what the new covenant promises. Supernatural, inside-out renewal of the heart. The Apostle Paul spoke of the difference between the old covenant and new covenant as the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of Christ. He says the old covenant gave God's word to Israel, which was a gracious blessing, but it's a letter that sort of remains outside of you, and it did not give life. So in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All the law could do for Israel was, was show them how far they failed. The repeated sacrifice showed them that they, they needed a better sacrifice. The corrupt priests showed them, we need a better high priest. 
And Christ is all of those things. These verses of Jeremiah promise true spiritual life. Our great high priest enthroned in heaven gives new life to his people as only he can. This is the salvation we need. Again, the old covenant priests couldn't give this life because they needed it too. And we can't transform our own dead hearts. But Jesus can give this life. He can give it because he's the one who lived righteously and conquered death. He can give it because he is God himself. He can give it because he ministers in heaven. And he has been given the right to give the spirit of God to his people. So the reason that Jesus can promise us life is because he has once and for all dealt with the source of death. Verse 12 of our chapter promises, I will remember their sin no more. This is a decisive statement. The 20th century Bible scholar F.F. Bruce put it this way, the forgiveness of sins is written into the terms of the new covenant in the most unqualified way. Right? That's like stuffy academic speech for saying, it's amazing. It's unqualified. It's written into the agreement. Forgiveness of sin. The ultimate ends of the new covenant and the old covenant are the same. You see that in verse 10. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You find that all over the old covenant scriptures. Belonging to God is the great blessing of salvation promised in the scriptures. But the old covenant offered this blessing in a conditional way. You can hear it in Jeremiah 7.23. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way I command you to do that it may be well with you. The old covenant relationship was always in danger of being broken by sin. And it actually was broken by sin. Right? That's God's verdict on the relationship. I made a covenant and they broke it. It was a broken covenant. The new covenant doesn't diminish the importance of obedience, but that's a, a whole nother sermon. But the ultimate ground of our salvation is not our obedience, but Jesus's obedience. We are saved by what Christ has done. Sinners become God's people because Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law and he obediently suffered death to pay for our sin. His work is so profoundly sufficient that he paid for sin once and for all. The repeated sacrifices of the old covenant were, were teaching Israel, you need something better than the blood of bulls and goats. And Jesus is that better thing, that better person, that better priest who makes better sacrifices. Even the sins we commit today, Jesus' once for all sacrifice paid for. So we don't need him to be crucified again. We need to come to God again in repentance trusting in the work of Christ to forgive us for our sin. So we don't go to a blood uh, to, a, to a tabernacle to offer a sacrifice. We don't beat ourselves up. When we sin, we turn to Christ. If we come to God through Jesus, trusting in his work, God remembers our sin no more. It is finished. God can be our God if we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all our sin. That is the promise of the new covenant. Forgiveness of sins, once for all, secured by Christ. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood 
that we're about to celebrate. To be a part of this covenant, you must trust in Christ. You can't put it better than the author of Hebrews does in chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant, and he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, is always, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you draw near to God through Jesus, God will remember your sin no more and give you a new heart. These are the great blessings that God proclaims to us in the gospel. It's worth stopping for a minute just to meditate on what this new heart is like. See, having the knowledge of God on our hearts doesn't mean we never sin. Sin remains in us. It's, it's powerful. But because we know God and God knows us, we have a, a new orientation to our sin. Instead of indulging sin and defending our sin, we grow in hatred of our sin and in repentance of sin. One great sign that you have new covenant life in you is that you hate the sin that Christ died to pay for. Because we love and know God, we learn how to respond to our sin in a righteous way. New covenant life is largely responding to sin in a righteous way, which means repenting of it. The righteous approach to sin is repentance. We turn away from it. We seek to kill it. And we treat our sin in this way, not because we're somehow great or because we have lots of willpower. We treat our sin like that because of what Christ has accomplished. He dealt the ultimate death blow to sin by dying on the cross. Earlier in Hebrews, the author has said that Christ tasted death for us. Paul would say we've died to sin with Christ. He broke sin's power by his resurrection from the dead. And so we battle with our sin out of new covenant confidence that God remembers our sin no more. I can be honest with you, brothers and sisters, about my sin because God remembers my sin no more. So what you think of me doesn't matter that much compared to the fact that God remembers my sin no more. Our sin has no claim on us because of what Christ has done. These verses also show us that the New Covenant community is a community of believers who have been given new life by God. This is a big way that the New Covenant community is different than the Old Covenant community. When God describes his Old Covenant people in verse 9 again, his general description is covenant breakers. And God judged his people for breaking his covenant. Now, to be sure, there was a remnant of faithful Israelites and Jeremiah is largely written to encourage that remnant to remain faithful, look forward to that day when the new covenant comes. But the new covenant is different. From the least new covenant member to the greatest, all know God because of Christ's saving work. The qualification for membership in the new covenant is not being related to Abraham by genetics. It's that you have Abraham's faith. And that you draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what qualifies you to belong to the new covenant. Those who are, who are in Christ are forgiven of their sins. And Paul says, we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The better promises of the new covenant have become a reality for those who trust Christ. 
Well, this has very practical implications for a church like ours. What, how do we organize ourselves? Uh, so we're, we're Baptists, and this, this informs our, our belief in the New Covenant, informs how we admit members. When we admit a new member to our church, we make an effort, as far as, as we can see, to ensure that they are, in fact, a member of the New Covenant. And all that means is, do they believe and know the gospel? Are they living their lives in a way that's consistent with the gospel? Are they trusting in Christ alone for forgiveness? Again, when we take the Lord's Supper, this is on display. We, we take the new covenant in Christ's blood. We take that cup and profess, God remembers my sin no more because Christ has poured out his blood for my sin. That's what makes us a church. And this reality has implications for how we live life together in the church. Because each one of us knows the Lord, we exhort one another every day, as Hebrews has already told us, to watch out for the deceitfulness of sin. We encourage each other to stand firm to the end as those who share in Christ. That's what the author called us to do in Hebrews chapter 3. And this isn't a job that's primarily given to the pastors of the church. It's given to every member of the new covenant. If you know Christ... You have gospel encouragement to share with your brothers and sisters. He's called all of us, every member of his new covenant community, to a life of ministry. So that's why we repeatedly encourage you, brothers and sisters, invest in each other's lives. Rejoice with each other in the gospel that God remembers our sin no more. Share the ways that you've seen Christ's faithfulness to you as he's forgiven you of your sin and helped you grow in godliness and provided for your needs. When we have times for small groups, this should be the, the thing we talk about, sharing in Christ together. Encourage each other to fight sin and to repent. Share your suffering with each other. Share how you're weak and need prayer. Admit that you need encouragement from each other. Your brothers and sisters know the Lord, and they are God, God's gifts for your encouragement. Are you able to be encouraged by them? Building relationships like this, rooted in the gospel, is the most important work we have to do in our church. If we are truly new covenant people, then the realities of new life in Christ should be on display in our lives. Is that the case for you? Does the joy and hope of the gospel mark your life? It's easy for this not to be the case. Pessimism can easily overtake us. If we live in the age of the self, we also live in the age of cynicism. Right? Nothing is that great. I don't want to be too joyful about anything because it may turn out bad. But that's not the gospel way, right? We can be realistic, but we're always joyful and hopeful. So is it evident from the way you treat your family that you know God and that he loves you? Or does your life look like the covenant breakers of the old covenant? Are you living with unrepentant sin that you're not addressing? Is your life marked by paranoid fear and self-protection? Are you seeking worldly solutions and worldly methods to solve your problems? If you look at Israel, that's what they did. Now their worldly solutions were a little different. They, when they were faced with threats, they turned to the idolatry of their pagan neighbors to save them. Or when they were faced with you know, armies at their gates, they turned to, to Egypt to save them. 
When they related to each other, they were often corrupt and self-serving and oppressed the widow and the orphan. And they assumed that they didn't need to repent because of their privileged religious status. Does that, does that characterize your life? Unrepentance? A worldly approach to your problems and to relationships? What are you serving? Where are you looking for help? Are you quick to repent of your sins? Does your life look like you're a member of the new covenant or the old? The last verse of our passage says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Once again, the Hebrews who received this letter should have been arrested by this. Trying to return to the old covenant is like trying to chase a mirage. It was vanishing. It was useless to save them. What are you chasing? What promises are you relying on? The promises of sin are false promises. And that goes for our false gods. Success won't give us meaning. Our, 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 our pursuit of our, our self's desires, that won't sustain us. Our authentic self will lead us astray to destruction. Even good things like family, as great as they are, they can't support the weight of our lives. There's only one place to find life and salvation. Only in Jesus Christ, the God-man who died for sinners and who now reigns and ministers in heaven. His promises are the better promises. They're the promises that really save. This chapter lays down the truth that we're all spiritually dead. We're all powerless to save ourselves. But God gives new life through Christ. Jesus once for all paid the price of our sin so that we can know God and be known by him. The old covenant is vanishing away. Self-salvation is a worthless vapor. Only Jesus Christ, the great high priest, can save. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help to see clearly the things that we're trusting in that will lead us astray. We pray for your help to understand, are we indulging in sin? Are we seeking worldly methods to solve our problems? Are we trusting in Christ and resting in the promises of the new covenant? Help us even as we leave in a few minutes to, to help each other with these things to share burdens and to encourage, to, to warn against sin, to encourage repentance. Father, help us be the, the new covenant community that you've called us to be. Help us to be the community that, that magnifies Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.